Good morning, everyone, and thank you for joining us on today's Ask the Expert webinar, ClinCheck Setup, Begin with the End in Mind, with Dr. Buddy Gardner. You'll earn two CE hours for attending today's program, and you'll receive important instructions on how to obtain your CE certificate at the conclusion of the presentation. Additionally, CE hours will automatically be added to your Invisalign doctor's side account. Please allow two to four weeks for CE hours to appear on your account. Please note you're able to listen to today's program via the webcast, and throughout the webinar, you'll have the opportunity to ask text questions, which our presenter will answer at the conclusion of the presentation. I apologize in advance if we're unable to answer everyone's questions since our time is limited, but we will follow up after the program to answer any outstanding text questions. Today's program will be archived in its entirety one week from today on the Education tab of your Invisalign Doctor's site, where you may also access archived versions of all of our previous Ask the Expert programs anytime. See hours. It's now my distinct pleasure to introduce today's speaker, Dr. Buddy Gardner. Dr. Gardner has been treating Invisalign patients at his private practice in Richmond, Virginia since 2002. Along with practicing dentistry for 40 years, he has lectured, conducted seminars, and consulted with dental professionals throughout the United States. Dr. Gardner holds a business administration degree from the College of William and Mary and a DDS from the Medical College of Virginia Commonwealth University. Without further delay, I'll turn the program over to Dr. Gardner. Dr. Gardner, you now have the floor. Thank you, David. I appreciate that very much. Uh, today we're going to talk about in-check setups. And basically, uh, I'm very much an occlusion-oriented dentist, so a lot of the things that I'm going to be talking about already know as general dentist. Uh, background in occlusion and cosmetics. Uh, a lot of these views and opinions, or most of these views and opinions today that I'm talking about are my own. So I put this page up, and I want you to know that this is, I think, about the way that I set up my own cases. If we, if, let's, let's start again then. If we go to your home page where the clinical preferences are, I think it's a good idea to go back and review those. So the clinical preferences, if you go to your home screen on your doctor page, is over to the right of the screen. So if you click on that, it will take you right to your clinical preferences. The first preference being which numbering system do we use, and I think that's a personal preference. I personally like to use the 1 through 32 system. Uh, the next preference is uh, dual arch treatment, and I always like to use the Align defaults, which is a simultaneous start for the full treatment, a simultaneous start for teens, and then a simultaneous finish for express. But you have your choice uh, in this matter as to which you prefer. Uh, the next is whether or not to use uh, passive aligners. I like to use these aligners, and which means that if, if one arch finishes before the other, then they will give you a clear aligner every two weeks, a fresh aligner. In the past, that wasn't possible. So a lot of times it was preferable to have one arch start before the other. But now with the uh, passive aligners, it, it, I think it's preferable to use the passive aligners in each case. I personally, uh, uh, let me show this slide here. I like these passive aligners are only available basically for the full cases and for Invisalign team. And uh, they just basically provide temporary retention while the apart opposing arch finishes its treatment. So I like using these. Um, Let's go to the next question, is the IPR on first plan check treatment plan. Uh, some folks like to start it on initial or, or like to have IPR in the treatment plan. Some folks don't. And I think a lot of times patients will, if you introduce the, the topic of IPR, some folks will say, I really don't want you to be doing any sawing between my teeth. So you have the choice at here. If you want to not have IPR, you can check that, that you don't want to have it. However, if you decide that you would like to have IPR and attachments uh, during your ClinCheck treatment plan, you can determine at which stage you like for that to begin, whether you want it to start right at the beginning with no delay, or you could actually delay it to stage two, stage three, stage four. That can make a difference uh, depending on whether or not you're seeing people every four weeks or every six weeks or every eight weeks. So depending on the, uh, the toughness of the case, you might want to uh, Delay the start of that to have people get used to their lines before you do any IPR, before you do any attachment. Uh, I usually prefer to start everything right at the beginning. It just is a routine that I think that I've gotten into that makes it easier, easier because our whole appointment scheduling is based on doing the IPR and placing attachments at the beginning of the treatment. Uh, the next one, uh, item number six, is pontics for open spaces. 
the line default is to put full-size pontics on any anterior space that is greater than four millimeters and on any posterior space that's greater than uh, six millimeters in space. Um, I like to use the full-size pontics that are automatically placed on these anterior teeth. So uh, the pontic system, I think, works very well. For instance, if you have an anterior tooth that's been extracted, it's, it's easy to have them put that pontic in there and then fill that pontic space with, I use composite, but you could use acrylic. I like composite because it fills in very easily. We can light cure it. And when they put the aligner in, it looks exactly as if they have the tooth in place. Now, when you talk about posterior spaces, I like, especially when there's a first molar uh, that extracted or is, is not there, to have them place the ponic in this area. And the reason is, is because if you don't put the ponic in, you'll end up with this thin space of acrylic, thin strip of acrylic. The aligner will clearly adapt, very adequately adapt around this second molar. And if you happen by chance to put a, a, an attachment on 28 or 29, the, the aligner fits so well, excuse me, I'm sorry, fits so well on the number 31 that when they go to take the aligner out, it actually will tear the aligner right beyond the 29 space. So I always like to, to put that pontic space. Now, I don't always fill it with composite. I may leave it clear. But it really facilitates being able to get those pontics in and out without tearing the aligner. The next uh, item is, is arch expansion. And you have your choice of how much or where you want the expansion to occur. Uh, you can do it between the canines, premolars, and molars. You can do it uh, canines and premolars. You can do it with premolars and molars. Um, or you can say you don't want to expand. I personally like to expand. I like to expand whenever it's possible because that's one of the, the ways that we can gain space. Also, you'll also if, as you see more cases, you'll notice that there are a lot of arches that are that are collapsed. So I, I prefer to, if I can, expand the arches. Now, if you, you, you tell how much you want to expand those cases, so you have the choice of less than two millimeters per arch or more than two millimeters, and I always check that if I can expand, I want to expand. If I expand uh, canines, premolars, molars, I want to do it at least two millimeters if, if possible. Now, when you're expanding, there are certain things that you really need to take into consideration. One is you need to know what the attachment levels are. The last thing you want to have happen is to expand the case, lose your attached gingiva, then have to send the patient for grafting of those surfaces, those root surfaces. Which brings up the question, if you know you're going to have to expand the case and you have a chance of losing your attachment and getting into the mucosal tissue, is it better to expand the case, I mean, uh, graft the case before you begin treatment or have the grafts done after the treatment? My preference is always to expand it and then have the grafts placed if possible. And the reasoning for that is, is because I, I don't feel like I want to expand in any kind of freshly grafted uh, soft tissue material. Now, if you think there's going to be a problem, I think it's always advisable to advise the patient right from the beginning. You know, this is a problem here. If we run into trouble, we may have to stop the treatment. We may have to uh, go with some grafting in the area and then continue treatment at a, at a later point in time. But if we were to, to think about expansion and we were to look at the arch width, if we were to say, uh, look at a, a maxillary arch and we were to measure the distance from the mesial palatal of first molar to the mesial palatal at the tissue line of the first molar on the opposite side, a general guideline would be about, that should be about 33, 34 millimeters. For a larger man, that's going to be, obviously be more for us. A smaller lady, it's going to be less than that. One of the other criteria that I look at uh, when I'm expanding is also how much bone can you see? When you look at your models or you look at your, your uh, Atero scan, when you're looking directly down on the occlusal, how much uh, tissue, how much bone can you see outside of the teeth? If those teeth are tipped and you, you can't see any bone, then the chances are you're not going to be able to expand as much as you could if you've got pretty good bone on the labial aspects of those premolars and those molars. So all of that becomes important when you're considering how much expansion. 
if you put down that you want to expand to two millimeters or more and the individual case doesn't dictate that, certainly when you're filling out your prescription, you can indicate that you don't want expansion, that you would rather gain space by using some of the other modalities. So let's talk about two size discrepancy, which is the next item in our preferences. Um, you have the choice of leaving space uh, distal to the laterals or, or you can close or leave spaces equally around the laterals. Now, I prefer to leave that space equally around the laterals, if it's one or even two of the laterals. And the reason is, is because when we get down to the end, thinking about what we're going to do at the end of the treatment, if we have those laterals in the right space, then we've set ourselves up to have a good result for either cosmetic bonding or veneers, either porcelain or composite veneers. Because as you'll see as we get into the program, I want those laterals to be in proportion to the other teeth. So when we're going through our clean checks, we want to have that space equal so it makes it easier for us at the end of the treatment to be able to restore those teeth and have it have, end up with a good cosmetic result. Uh, the next uh, item is upper, upper arch leveling. Uh, you can level all the incisal edges if you would like, or you can uh, have the laterals half a millimeter less. Now, my preference is to always have the laterals have about a half a millimeter to a millimeter less uh, in height, shorter than the central. The ideal cosmetic result is the gullwing effect, where the centrals are at one level, the laterals go up slightly, and then the canines come down again. So that if you look at it from the front and you go side to side, it, it's centrals a little bit longer, laterals a millimeter to a half millimeter shorter than the centrals, and then the canines more in line with the centrals. That usually ends up being the uh, the best-looking cosmetic uh, in studies that have been uh, conducted and people, uh, not dentists, but just the general population, identify what they think are the best-looking smiles. Invariably, we're going to say ones where the centrals are a little bit longer than the laterals. So that's, that's usually what I put down right from the beginning. And then you can choose how you want your, your aligners to be trimmed. You can choose to have them trimmed halfway between the gingival margin and the CEJ, or you can trim them at the CEJ. I think in this one, I usually mark it halfway between. But you have to be careful here because in some cases that uh, where you have pontics on bridges, uh, it's real easy to uh, have those aligners lock in underneath the uh, bridge pontic. Also, uh, a lot of females have very rounded lower premolars. And if you extend those aligners down beyond the, the CEJ, in many cases, it wraps underneath it and locks those aligners in. And particularly if you have uh, attachments on those premolars, it almost becomes impossible to reduce the, to get those aligners out. So one solution is, in those cases, make sure that you indicate that you want the aligners trimmed a little bit higher up, more closer, closer to the CEJ. And also, when you get those aligners back, you need to examine them and make sure that you're not going to lock the aligner in because there's nothing any more embarrassing than convincing a patient of how easy uh, Invisalign treatment is going to be, and then you put the first aligners in and you can't get them out. So make sure that you, if whatever you mark, that before you put those aligners in that you've checked to make sure that they're going to be able to easily get those aligners out. So it may mean modifying the, the aligner itself. It may be mean modifying the, the type of attachments or the number of attachments that you have on those teeth. Okay, the next one then is uh, if we're going to, for space closure, we can apply a virtual C-chain. And I put a virtual C-chain in every single treatment plan. So this is in my preferences. I want that to come back every single time with a virtual C-chain. And what a C-chain is is basically uh, it's an overcorrection technique that simulates what happens in, in orthodontics, the real C-chain or the power chain, where you're trying to close contact. Now, when we get to the end of treatment, what I try to do is I'll ask the patient, after we've finished their normal set of aligners, I'll ask the patient, are you catching food anywhere? If they are, then I will go on and place the first of the overcorrection aligners. And what we're trying to do is make sure that when we have done our IPR or moving teeth, that we don't end up with space, uh, they should have adequate, adequate contact between each tooth. So when a patient comes in with their aligners in, I 
you know, examine them to make sure that the teeth are tracking. I have the patient take the aligner out, and I actually pass floss between each of the anterior teeth. If it goes through very loosely, uh, even if they say that food's not catching, I will probably go on and put them in the uh, overcorrection aligners or the virtual C-chain. Now, there's a you got to be careful because if you put in a virtual C-chain and the contacts are already tight, you may end up uh, causing an inadvertent intrusion of a tooth. In fact, this can happen anywhere in the mouth. If you've got tight contacts and you force an aligner in without reducing or making sure the floss goes through those contacts very easily, you could intrude a tooth and not even know it. But that can especially happen with the virtual C-chain. So if I place a patient in a virtual C-chain and they, I make them come back in two weeks so that I can check to make sure that those contacts are tight, that they haven't gotten too tight, because if there's not enough space, those, those aligners are going to force those teeth together and you could intrude one of those, either a lateral or a central. So um, let's look at a ClinCheck. I wanted you to see here what this virtual C-chain looks like. Now, while this is coming up, I want to tell you how else I use a, a, these over-correction aligners. If you end up with a case and you have a, a little bit too much space between the upper and the lower incisors, too much overjet, it's possible to use just the upper virtual C-chain and be able to bring those upper six anteriors back just slightly to try to close that overjet. If, for instance, you have too much contact in the anterior where the teeth, and you put your fingers on the centrals, the laterals, and there's a lot of fremitus, or they feel like they're not really hitting in the posterior teeth, you could do the exact opposite. You could use, not use the upper overcorrection aligner, but use the lower and bring those lower incisors back just a bit. So not only can you use it to correct contacts, but you could also use it to correct a little too much overjet or a little bit too much contact in the anterior. Now, when you're using them in that way, you absolutely have to make sure that the contact that you're not that the contact's not too tight, which means that you may have to do a little disking in between the teeth. And I like to use those blue diamond strips in the interproximal kit, aligned interproximal uh, reduction kit. So make sure that you've got enough room and you can bring those teeth back uh, just enough and either close an overjet or decrease the amount of occlusion in those anteriors. But let's look at this. This is an over what, what happens with overcorrection, and you can visualize what I'm talking about here when we talk about being able to reduce it. When we get to here to stage nine, if you'll watch here, what happens? Just the anterior six start to be tightened up. In other words, we're cinching together those those contacts, which you can use in many different ways, but it. it the three ways that I've talked about, I think, work extremely well. Close contacts, reduce a little bit of overjet, or uh, be able to retract the anteriors in the lower to eliminate some of the tight contact. A good technique to use when you get down to the end of your treatment. Okay, so the next one in our clinical preferences would be attachments. And I'm sure all of us uh, are familiar with the, the drag and drop tool that we have. If you have if the line sends back a ClinCheck and you don't want the attachment on the tooth, you can just uh, click on it, bring it to the trash can, and it'll, it'll take it right off there. On the other hand, if there are attachments that you would like to place, you just click on it, bring it to the tooth, and drop it on the tooth. So it's a great tool. Uh, usually, though, when I'm, I just, when I'm using the Align defaults, I usually use the, the attachments that, that they recommend and they use. Occasionally, I'll need to use that uh, drop and drag tool. Okay, let's talk about precision cuts. Um, if you if you've got an AP correction and you and you're using elastics uh, and you want precision cuts, for instance, in the in the premolar or in the canine region, you need to say one if you want to use the precision cuts and two at which stage you would like for those precision cuts to begin. If I'm going to use those, I usually will start them on stage one, unless there's some reason uh, that I think the patient's going to have a hard time with it. I'll let them become accustomed to the aligners, become accustomed to getting them in and out before I would introduce any elastics. 
but you have the opportunity to elect on this number 15 when you want those precision cuts to start. So when you're when you're looking at your clean check, and if you are using elastic, then you may have to give some individual instructions for that specific case. But in general, if you're going to use them and you mark this, they're going to begin at, at uh, stage one. Okay, so then let's let's go down to our special instructions, and this is what I have set up, or say in my special instruction. It goes like this: set up anterior teeth in the golden portion. That is, from the anterior view, the centrals should appear 1.6 times larger than the laterals in their width. The canine should show 0.6 times the width of the laterals. Make stepwise in the upper as ideal as possible and then match the lowers to the upper. Please inform me of occlusal adjustments that need to be made to the teeth. So if I were to show you this ClinCheck from the, from the anterior view, the final result, and I were to put the grid up from on the, on the ClinCheck uh, feature, if I were to tell you that the lateral incisor was five millimeters in width, then that means that the central should be eight millimeters. In other words, five millimeters times 1.6 would give us eight millimeters width of the central. If we were to then look at the canine, if the canine is 0.6 the size of the lateral, then that means that this, from the contact point to the medial third of the canine would be three millimeters. So we would have a, a five millimeter lateral, three millimeter canine, and eight millimeter central incisor. Now, it's real easy when it's five because it works out just right, but you may have to determine if you've got the certain size of a central that you just use, need to use the proportions that are, that are given. In my opinion, if you're going to make a mistake, you would like the laterals to appear a little bit bigger rather than a little bit smaller. So I always like to have uh, the centrals uh, and laterals and canines in the correct proportion if possible, but if not, then I'm going to have the laterals be a little bit bigger. Now, why does that become so important? Because of the fact that if we have, uh, if in our final treatment, we would really like to have a, a U-shaped arch. If we make those laterals that are too small, that's going to have a final outcome on the shape of our arch, because laterals that are too small are going to tend to make the arch more V-shaped. Laterals that are too big are going to tend to make it more squared off. So getting the proportion right becomes important not only from a cosmetic point of view, but from the shape of the arch point of view. It also has an effect on where the canine will end up. Now, if we're thinking about the end in mind, I always like to equilibrate every single case. And we'll talk about this a little bit later. But if we're trying to get good cuspid rise, where the canine ends up being placed is a real determinant in what kind of canine rise we can have when we get to the end and we're equilibrating the case. So getting that proportion right right at the beginning makes a difference. Also, if we talk about the proportions of the teeth, we'd like the width of our centrals to be about 80% of the length. So as we go through these, uh, these guidelines, we need to think in terms of what is the relationship not only of the anterior six, but what is the, the relationship of the centrals, which means that if we've got teeth that are, are too long, maybe we need to do some enamel plasty uh, if in relationship height to width and in relationship to the other teeth. Or if we've, we've got teeth that are too short, we may need to uh, either do some gingival plasty or we may need to do some bonding at the end of treatment. But as we're doing our treatment plans, we need to be thinking in terms of how we're going to end up with the result that we really want and be able, when you're get, having your consult with your patient, to talk about what need, may need to be done. Patients really respond, I believe, much better if they know what's going to happen, that you're not surprising things on them as you go through treatment. When I said stepwising, make the teeth step back in an equal proportion. So if we if we look at this case from the anterior and we see that, the, that we've got the golden proportion and we see that we have uh, the premolars and the molars and even the second molar, what I really like to see is that they step back in equal proportions. Because this, if you look at that from the occlusal view, is going to give you just an almost an absolutely perfect U-shaped arch. So when I talk about 
stepping back or stepwising, I mean step these teeth back in equal proportions because that makes for that vocal corridor. Just it really looks good. Now, if you look at this case, this is this is an interesting case because uh, the shape of the arch is good, the proportions are right, everything looks really good, except when we matched up the lowers to the uppers because of, and we had the midline correct, because of the shape of the lowers, midline upper to lower didn't match up exactly right. In my opinion, I have never had, and I ask uh, a lot of folks, but in my opinion, nobody's ever come to me and said, I don't like this because my midlines don't match up. I find that most patients are more interested in where the upper midline is in their face in relationship to their nose and the rest of their face. So if you get the midlines correct in the upper, you get the proportions right, you get the vocal corridor right, and match up the lowers to the uppers, sometimes it's not going to match up. But I've never found anyone that really has objected to that. Okay, so let's talk about the buccal corridor a little bit more. Obviously, the more the buccal corridor is filled with teeth, in other words, the way they step back, as we just talked about, the more youthful the smile. And there's nobody that doesn't want to have a more youthful-looking smile. So this buccal corridor becomes a, a really important part of, of our overall objective. And as we as we look at that buccal corridor, as when they smile, the teeth appear to become shorter as they move distally. So the teeth basically are following the lip line. So if you start looking at, at profiles, if you start looking at facial features right from the beginning, notice how their lips are when they're smiling, when their lips are, are uh, at rest, you'll gain a lot of information in, uh, that you'll be able to use in setting up these clinchecks. But what, what we really like is to have those posterior teeth uh, fill the smile. We like to have the teeth become shorter as they move distally. So here it shows how the teeth uh, follow the lip line. So the, the smile line is going to follow right there. So when they have a nice smile, it's going to follow the lip line. Now let's look at this. If we, set, we look at this side and we look at this side, this side versus this side, you see on this side, the, the smile is not quite closed all the way, but the teeth basically follow that lip line very well. That's the kind of thing that I like to see where the, where the teeth are following the lip line. If we look at the other side, we see that the, the canine appears long. Now, it's a little bit more closed, but the lip line the canine tends to dig into the lip a little bit. So in this case, what I would do, knowing that at the beginning that the canine is a little bit longer, I'd probably just do some enamel plastic on this canine to bring it into a better position to, to improve the smile. But you can see the difference. That canine looks a lot better than this canine. So you, kind of, you need to decide what you're going to do with that. Sometimes the decisions aren't made until you get to the end of treatment, but it really is nice if you begin with that end in mind that you would really like to accomplish. So that means that you're able to talk to the patient before you start that you, you're probably going to have to do some, some reshaping of teeth when you get to the end of your treatment. Okay. The next rule is that the maxillary teeth should always have a slight distal axial inclination. Now, you may get a clean check back, and you'll look at it, and the golden proportions look like they're correct, uh, you've got good buccal corridors, the smile, the teeth follow the smile line, the lip line, everything looks good, but you can't quite place your finger on what it is that doesn't look right. And almost invariably, it's going to be that the actual inclination is either too upright or maybe even measly inclined. If you take a really good, perfect smile, you're going to find that these actual inclinations always are distal. And so check for that. that. That's one of the things that really can make the difference between making a good smile and making a great smile. It's interesting to me, too, that many people, especially the females, say when they come in, you know, I'm not interested in my lower teeth. Uh, they're fine. Nobody ever sees them. All I want you to do is get my upper teeth straight. Well, that may be true when you're young. When you're younger, usually a millimeter to three millimeters of tooth showing is really what we like to see when you're when you're at rest position. But there was a study done by Vig and Brundo, and they found that at age 30, 
Uh, a 30-year-old will have three millimeters of maxillary incisor showing and a half a millimeter of mandibular incisor showing. But by age 70 in rest position, no maxillary incisor is showing and three millimeters of mandibular incisor showing. And this becomes really apparent as people age and they start talking. So oftentimes what I'll do is just hand the patient the mirror and I'll say, now I want you to talk and I want you to see yourself speaking and see what actually happens when you're talking, which shows the most. And invariably they're going to say those lower teeth. So if, you, if you're talking to a patient, you really need to make sure that, that, that the, they understand that the lower teeth really do have an effect on their appearance so that you don't get to the end of treatment and they, they're then dissatisfied because the lower teeth don't fit quite right and don't look right in their smile line. We can talk about uh, in the golden proportion and all the things we have to this point, but if we don't know what the incisal, where the incisal edge position is, then we could mess up the case. Um, a full balanced symmetrical smile shows 10 to 12 millimeters of the centrals and just a hint of the free gingival tissue. So that when you're smiling broad, an ideal smile would be symmetrical, you would see a little bit of gum tissue, you'd show 10 to 12 millimeters of centrals. Now obviously those, those numbers vary from individual to individual because a larger uh, structured person is going to, bony structured person is going to have more smile, person has more bigger teeth, some people have smaller teeth. But so you you kind of got to modify these according to the case you have. But you need to, to evaluate that at the beginning so that when you get to the end, you end up with the result that you really would like to have. So in size of edge position, even if uh, even if the golden proportions are right, if the incisal edge is not in the right position, you might not end up with the results you want. And one of the things that I have people do when I am examining them is I have them say the F and the V sounds, five, five. And you can find out where that incisal edge position actually hits. From a vertical point of view, it should hit right into the inner vermilion border of the lower lip. So when they say 55, you should stand over the top of them and notice where those incisal edges hit when they say those sounds. And the other thing is you, you don't want those the incisal edge to be too far facially. If it hits on the outside of the lip, the, the teeth, that's not the good position. Or if it hits, they can't hit the inner vermilion border, then the teeth are too far uh, posteriorly. So I always like to check those because if you set a case up, and if you look at these two cases, this case in rest position, the teeth are hitting that are closer to hitting that inner vermilion border. In this case, the teeth are, are buried, the central incisors are buried into the lower lip. Even if we were to get the proportions right on this case and we set the incisal edge position at this position, the smile line is going to be too gummy. It's going to, it's not going to look good. So this case, we would want to make sure that when we look at that ClinCheck, that we know that we've got to do something with the incisal edge position of our centrals. We'd like it to be more like this rather than like this. So right from the beginning, we note where that incisal edge position is so that when we're filling out our prescription forms, we know what we need to do, either intrusion or we've got to do some enamelplasty that we're going to have to... Uh, you know, we may have the laterals in the right place. We may even do extrude laterals. We may have to do various things to end up with the result we want. But we need to notice it right from the beginning. Another thing about the incisal uh, edge position is that is I always look at the nasal labial line angle. Now, I don't do cefs and I don't do all this fancy stuff, but I do want to know how those central incisor are going to affect the profile of the patient. So. If we were to look at the nasolabial line angle on a man, that would usually be about 90 to 95 degrees. If we look at that same nasolabial line angle on a female, it's going to be between 95 and 105 degrees. So if we were to look at a case like this, we'd take the, our pictures, are we to observe the, the patient in the chair, we just have them turn their face sideways, and I just look directly into the, from a side view. Now, in this case, it appears to me that the nasolabial line angle is just about 90 degrees. It might even be a little bit less than that, but right at 90 degrees. So that gives me a clue that maybe this incisal edge is, of the maxillary incisal is not quite at the right position. And if we look at the ClinCheck, in fact, it's not. I mean, this is a real extreme case, obvious case. But I like to look at that nasolabial 
line angle on every case to make sure that I'm getting the, the right profile and, and tissue uh, contours for the patient. There's another case. This one looks to me like it's probably at about right at 90 degrees also. Maybe a little bit less, but I would say 90 degrees. So that gives me a real clue as to what that incisal edge position of those maxillary incisors probably is. And, and in fact, it's an extreme case also. So these little things that we look at make a difference in the final result of our case. So it's not just about having the teeth in the right proportion or even having the actual line angles at the right going uh, distally. It also has to do with that incisal, uh, incisal edge hits into the lower lip and how it affects the profile of the individual. So all these things need to be taken into consideration. Now, here's, a, here's another uh, illustration I want to give you. If you're in the middle of treatment and all of a sudden you notice that the tissue between the central incisors is starting to bulge, or the tissue between the centrals and the laterals is starting to bulge, your first inclination is to think, well, maybe the aligner is impinging on the tissue and that might be causing some irritation to the gum. Another thought might be, well, maybe they've trapped something underneath the gum tissue and it's causing that bulbous look for the gum tissue. But probably what it is, it goes back to uh, Frank Spears' uh, studies, that the contact point between uh, incisors needs to be four and a half to five millimeters above the crustal bone. If that contact point becomes less than that, then you're going to start to get bulging of tissue. If it becomes more than that, then you're going to start having black triangles. So you need to be very careful when you're doing interproximal contacts, I mean interproximal reduction, that you contour those interproximals. Once you've taken it, made your, your uh, interproximal slice, that you contour this tissue right in this area to make sure that that contact point is not too broad and doesn't extend down too far. Because if it, if it reaches too close to that crustal bone, it is going to cause some kind of tissue response. If it's too far away, it's also going to, to uh, give a tissue response. So that's one of those things that we need to monitor throughout treatment, especially as we're moving teeth together and we've done interproximal reduction. So that's one of the things that I continually look for is what's going on with the tissue. Okay. Another thing that when we get our ClinChecks uh, back, we need to think about uh, what is the plane of occlusion? A proper curve of speed is gently is gently sloped, and the reason for that is is because the teeth have to be able to move in and out. So we're, we're real concerned about the curve of speed, the curve of Wilson, which together are called the plane of occlusion. And you notice that on the curve of Wilson, as I said, the anteriors tend to be a little bit higher than molars when you're looking at it from a lateral view. Many times in our ClinChecks, I'll get them back and the curve of speed is too flat, which is going to have an effect on anterior guidance and cuspid rise. So you've got to make sure that you don't intrude centrals too much that you lose that curve of speed. When you look at the curve of Wilson, you notice that the posterior teeth tilt lingually, which means that the upper molars are going to, take, are going to uh, tilt buckly. And that allows for the disclusion of teeth when you go into those lateral movements and anterior movements. So evaluating the, the plane of occlusion, the curve of wheels, and the curve of speed becomes important when you're, when you're doing your final clin check because that's going to have an effect on your final result and how you can equilibrate the case at the end of the treatment. Okay, so if we're going to have a, a stable, minimally stressed occlusion, we need to have a, a centric stop on all our teeth. We can't have any posterior teeth contact and excursive movements, and we need to have anterior guidance and harmony with the envelope of function, and we need to have those condyles work from centric relation. Now, when we talk about centric relation, when I equilibrate, I equilibrate every case into centric relation. But if I have joint pathology at the beginning, or if I think I'm going to have some joint pathology, or if the patient has been treated previously uh, for TMJ or uh, MPD, uh, I will uh, do some kind of pretreatment before I put them in the aligners. Because what I don't want to have happen is I don't want to be treating someone and then uh, 
have them have some kind of complaints midway through the treatment. Like, you know, I, I never had headaches until I got into these aligners. Or, you know, I've noticed that my jaw is clicking now that you've started moving the teeth around. So I always try to evaluate where they are uh, from a TMJ and a muscular point of view before I even begin the treatment. And uh, I like using uh, Mark Piper's uh, classifications of TMJ. So uh, he's on the Internet. You can go through, find his classifications. But I always want to know that at the end I can equilibrate the teeth into centric relations so that I have all these elements of a stable, minimally stressed occlusion. So it, when, when I end up with the case, when I'm equilibrating, this is what I want. I want contact points on all the cusp tips. I want them either in the, in the uh, fossas or I want it on the marginal ridge so that when you look at the tooth, when you put your articulating paper in and you have your final bite, it looks like this. There's no places where there's inclined planes hitting. Now, this right here, probably if I'm equilibrating, I'm going to clean this up a little bit right here and maybe even a little bit here, try to move this contact a little bit more toward the central fossa or toward the uh, marginal ridge. But I want those centric stops if I can get those on every single tooth because what that means is the closer we can get to an ideal occlusion, the less need we have for retention. The further we get from the ideal, the more we need retention. It's kind of like this. I've always wondered why some people come in, have never had braces, have never had anything, and their teeth stay in the position that they need to stay in for their entire life. Other people, the teeth are moving continuously. Now, the, the rule doesn't apply for everyone because there's other things involved, absolutely. But generally, I like to get it as close to the ideal as I can because I know my retention is not going to be a problem. So we have to think of these things before we begin to move, before we begin our treatment. So what do I mean by no interference in excursive movements? If a patient is to, and I will demonstrate, in fact, I'll get right in front of them and I'll put my teeth together and I'll actually move my teeth in a lateral movement so that I go to the canine rise and I'll come back. I'll move to the other side in the canine rise and, I'll, and then I'll go in the anterior movement. And what I tell people is this, that Nobody goes around moving their teeth like that. But the, this cuspid rise, this anterior uh, uh, movement, is kind of like our curbing. I practice on Forest Hill Avenue, and, and the street has curbs on it. And I tell people it's their curbing. It's just like if you were driving down Forest Hill Avenue, you wouldn't drive on the curbing. You would drive within the curbing. If you're not paying attention and you have to hit the curbing, it'll wake you up and, and bring you back into the road. If the curbing weren't there and you weren't paying attention, you could just drive off into somebody's front yard. And our, our anterior teeth are very much that way. They protect the back teeth. As long as we have the cuspid rise and anterior guidance um, and, and working within the envelope of function, then those posterior teeth are being protected. And I will actually show people many cases where uh, they don't have the cuspid rise, they don't have the proper anterior guidance, and a lot of these folks already have crowns, and I'll go back and give them a history of what I think has happened, that they had a big filling in the tooth, uh, the tooth is broken, they had a bigger filling, that tooth breaks, they put a, uh, a crown on the tooth, the porcelain breaks on the crown, and many times the patients will say, how, how do you know that history? Well, the history has to do with how the occlusion is set up and having it in harmony with the joints and having the in harmony with the muscles. So all of this comes together in our final treatment plan. How, and we need to think about all these things when they're at the beginning. So we talk about canine guidance. And I love this program. It's BiteFX. It, it really does, is a good educational tool. But if we look at canine, uh, canine rise, what it is is that when those teeth, when those canines go out on one another, that no posterior tooth hits from the very beginning of that canine rise. They have that centric stop, but they don't hit anything beyond that very first initial movement. And then on the anterior guidance, the same thing. When they go into anterior guidance and they move their teeth forward, the teeth, nothing in the posterior should, should collide. It should just be movement forward. Movement forward, no posterior. Complete disclusion of the posterior teeth when they go into that anterior movement. 
Now, like I said, nobody does that. That would look crazy. But what happens in your chewing cycles, you're staying within those limits, and it's, as I said earlier, it's the curbing that works. Now, we want ideal tooth contact also, and I showed you that on the uh, models where I was getting ready to equilibrate. But ideal tooth movement is that when those teeth contact in a chewing movement, that they come together such that the only place they hit is on the cusp tips and the fossils are on the marginal ridges. There's no other contact. Any contact on inclined planes is going to tend to create a problem, either a joint problem, muscle problem, a bone problem, or they're going to wear teeth. And a lot of times what you'll see are these worn-down teeth that occur. Because if there's going to be a, a uh, there's going to be an issue between or a battle between tooth and muscle, the muscle's always going to win. So what we don't want to have happen is have people start tearing these teeth apart. Let's see if we can make this work. Because if they have these destructive contacts, what's going to end up happening, you're going to end up with severely worn teeth. And we see a lot of elderly gentlemen uh, that have this exact thing. They've worn their teeth down to the point where they're just, there's hardly anything left. In fact, I have a patient right now uh, that's recently come in to see me that uh, his lower incisors couldn't be more than a couple of millimeters tall. And his posterior teeth are breaking and wearing, and he's, he wants to know what can be done about it. Well, at that point, about the only thing that can be done is a complete re, uh, mouth rehabilitation. And as, as folks get older, that's not as easy to convince them that they need that. So let's look at some clin checks then and see and evaluate what these clin checks look like um, using these principles that we've just talked about. So if we were to t take this patient, a uh, young lady that comes in, and she has her... Uh, is interested in Invisalign, and we, we convince her that Invisalign is what she needs to do, and so we get her up on the clean check, and we look at her case, and let's, let's pull this up here and see what it looks like. Now, we're only going to evaluate this clean check from the anterior. We're not going to look at it from any other, re any other view because it's too hard looking on the screen, but if we were to look at this case, and we send it in, and this is what she looks like from the anterior view when we start. And the, the technicians at Invisalign send us back this ClinCheck. So we look at it from, from just from the anterior point of view, some of the things that we've talked about. And we're going to assume that the incisal edge position is correct. In other words, it hits the intervermilion border of the lower lip uh, from a... Uh, horizontal point of view or from a buccal uh, lingual point of view that they're in the right position, that nasolabial line angle is correct. Everything is the way it should be. Before I do anything else, I'm going to just do a general survey of this ClinCheck and try to determine what I see. Now, I would probably right off put the grid up and measure, the grid feature being right here, put that grid up, uh, measure what the size of the, the teeth are, let's get the right view here, the patient view. Now it's not responding, it must be because I'm on the slides, but I would put the grid feature up and measure the size of the centrals, measure the size of the laterals. Determine what that golden proportion is. The next thing I would look at would be, what do the buccal corridors look like? Now if we look at this side, this is not too bad. I would probably move this premolar palatally a little bit to get a little bit better stepwising in there. This side doesn't look very good to me at all because you see predominantly the first premolar and the, a little bit of the second premolar. You see, I want to get this side to look more like this side. So what would I tell the uh, lab technician down in Costa Rica? I would say move... Uh, number 12 palatally, palatally, number 13 palatally, so that the, the first premolar, the second premolar, and the, and the first molar all appear equal in from the anterior view, and that I would want to move number five palatally. And then I would send that in, and I would get it back and see what they've done with it, and then maybe make some modifications to that. 
Now, a lot of times what I'll say, if I like one side, a buckle quarter on one side, I will say to the lab technician, please move number uh, 12, 13, 14 uh, so that they appear from the anterior view as number 3, 4, 5 appear. I always try to give the lab technician several references in order to be able to move the teeth to the position that I would really like to have those teeth finally be in. But the most obvious thing to me, even if all these proportions were right, if we look at this, and this is one of those ones, assuming these teeth are in golden proportion in the anterior, the one thing that really stands out to me is that the laterals have a mesial axial inclination. You see that both of those. So it makes the smile, even though the proportions are good, it makes the smile not quite what it should be. It just doesn't look as good as it could be. So we'll send it back and we'll tell the lab technician we need to change those actual inclinations. We need to fix the buccal corridor. We'll send it in. We'll get it back and we'll see what the, what the lab technician has done. Now, a lot of times what we communicate is not clear enough to the lab technician. They can't really tell what we're trying to say. So the more examples that we can give them of what we mean and the better descriptions we can give them of what we're trying to say, the better chance we have that they're going to send back what we're expecting. So we, we send those instructions to the lab technician. Lab technician takes those instructions and sends us this. So when I first look at that, I say, I put up my grid again, and I measure the proportions. Proportions are still good. I look at the corridors, and they're looking better, looking a lot better. This uh, left side of the patient looks a lot better. Maybe this premolar could move in slightly. Maybe this premolar could move in a little bit more, so 5 and 12 maybe move palatally a little bit more than they have. Uh, my lateral incisors in relationship to the centrals look pretty good. I'm thinking at the end that, you know, I may do a little enamel plasty on this tooth and this tooth because, you know, maybe we could uh, make those look a little bit better, get the links a little better uh, because there's some wear on the teeth and they're not quite the way they would be in, in final appearance. But the thing that stands out to me the most on this case is that the actual inclinations of the laterals are still measly inclined. The centrals are, are pretty much upright. They could be distally inclined a little bit, but that doesn't bother me nearly as much as this actual inclination on these laterals. So I'm going to write back to the lab technician. I'm going to say we need to we need to correct these actual inclinations. This is this is not right. Now, the temptation is to say, "Golly, I've I've already done this twice. Now I, I want to, I want don't know that I necessarily want to send it back again." But I found that uh, if you send these things back and you and you you're, make sure that the lab technician understands what you're what you're trying to say, that they will correct it. But a lot of it has to do with what you say in your preferences. So if you're not real clear on your preferences and what you expect, then you need to correct that. And that's one of the reasons why we went back through those preferences to make sure that you have written out what it is you expect to happen. Let's see here if I can get this up big again. So we've sent it back to the lab technician, and now they've sent this back to us. And here's what we have. Now, this is starting to look a lot better. And there comes a point in time where you have to say, is this good enough, or do I need to send it back once more? I have no problem with sending a clean check back and forth numerous times if what I would like to have happen in the ClinCheck is not happened because the basic rule is this, is if it's not in your in your ClinCheck plan, it's not going to happen in the aligners. So if you don't have it in the plan to begin with, it's not going to happen. And in fact, oftentimes it can be in the ClinCheck treatment plan and it might still not happen in the mouth. But if you don't have it in this original plan, then there's no hope that you're going to have happen what you really want to have happen. But I think this looks a lot better. You know, this is getting closer. I still think that this actual inclination could be a little bit better, maybe even this a little bit better. Buccal corridors looking better. Uh, still maybe could move 5 and 12 a little bit, but really getting close to what I consider to be an acceptable treatment plan. So let's look at another case. And this is a, this is a really interesting case to me because um, 
this is a, a teen, Invisalign teen, and there are several interesting points that come up in this case that I think we need to look and see. So we get this case, uh, we send it in to the lab technician. Uh, we're using the scanner now. I like to use the scanner. We've been using it for a couple of years. I've found that uh, using the scanner, we get our clean checks back much more quickly. Uh, the aligners fit just absolutely perfectly. Uh, a lot of folks don't like to have impression material put in their mouth, so it eliminates that. Um, and we don't have to worry about distortion, and everything just works out uh, really well using that Atero scanner. So if you don't have one, my advice would be uh, get an Atero scanner because it will make your life easier, not only for Invisalign, but for general dentists it makes uh, Crown and Bridge so much easier because you can just uh, send your scan right directly to the lab, and if you're doing zirconia or whatever, they can mill those crowns right from your scan. So it's, it's really very effective. So let's look at this case. So we, we send it in, the clinician, uh, the technician sends us back this case. Now there are a couple of things that, that really stand out to me right away on this. Uh, one, the buckle quarters are, are a little bit off. But this is a really good example of how you can be deceived by gum lines. If you look at the tissue line, this canine on number six, the tissue line is really different than the tissue line on number 11. So when you look at it visually, it just looks different. Now, this is an artificially placed tissue line. So this is not, in actuality, what's going to happen. So you need to remember that. When you're looking at these ClinChecks, what you see here is not necessarily what the tissue line is going to look like. Because if you look at the previous, uh, the, the case from the beginning, the canine isn't even showing, so the lab technician really didn't have an idea of where this tissue line should be. So you need to take that into consideration when you're evaluating this case. But the other thing that, that looks different to me is we've got teeth that are totally different. If you look at the shape of number 7 and the shape of number 10, they're different. But look at number 8 and 9. They're completely different also, as is the tissue line. So if we look at the tissue lines on those, it looks, they look pretty good there, but when they send the ClinCheck back, it looks totally different here. So we need to take that into consideration. Now, this is a young girl, and we've got to decide right at the beginning what we're going to do. And we should, should have noticed this when she was in for the consult, so we'd know what was going to happen. We've either got to bond to get this tooth looking more like this tooth, or we've got to do an enamelplasty on this tooth, on number nine, to make it appear the same. Now, the other thing that's different is this number nine is a lot more bulbous. This has a much flatter surface. So when you're looking at these teeth, they just are different. And when you look at them in the mouth, they look different. So these things need to be taken into consideration. If, if the golden proportion is not quite right, this tooth is a little bit bigger, this tooth is a little bit smaller in relationship to the centrals, um, this tooth, the axial inclination is off a little bit, as is number seven, seven and ten. So we send it back. We ask them to correct these things that we see in this clean check and ask them to send it back again and we get another clean check. And we look at this clean check and see if uh, if it's acceptable to us. And we're using, as I said, using the guidelines that we've established for what we would like to have for the ideal smile, not only tooth-wise, but also tissue-wise. How is this going to affect the tissue, the lips, uh, the nasal labial line angle, all of those things need to be taken into consideration right from the beginning. And we're not looking at all that on these clean checks, but all of that, those, those items need to be considered when we're looking at the clean checks. So let's look at this one now. This is the second one that comes back. Well, the axial inclination of the laterals is looking a little bit better. It looks to me like number 10 still is a little bit uh, more dist more measly inclined than number number seven. Uh, the buccal corridor is looking better. Um, it looks like on this side that maybe the canines, well, actually both sides of the canines are a little bit longer, so we might have to think about what we're going to do with that as we come to the end. Uh, we have to remember this is a young girl, so enamelplasty, we want to limit if we can. We don't want to ever have to do any veneers or crowns on teeth on a 15-year-old if we can avoid that, so we really need to think it through right from the beginning. But I would Right, right off, I would say uh, we need to get the proportion a little bit better. Uh, we need to get the actual inclination better. Focal quarter, 
I'm pretty good with that. We might want to have a little bit more first molar showing on each side, so we might alter these premolars just a bit. So let's send it back to the lab and let's see what uh, what the lab technician would do in this case. If we send it back and see what we would get back. Okay, it's coming up here now. So we've got the case back. We've already had two two previous clean checks, and I'm really hoping that this one's going to look pretty good because I don't like to keep sending these things back and forth if I don't have to. So we get it back, and this is what it looks like. Actual inclination's better. Still could maybe be improved a little bit. Uh, buckle quarters looking pretty good. Still maybe could be improved a little bit. Uh, but we got to remember that the two things that are really throwing us off are the difference between the shape of the centrals and the tissue heights on the teeth. Those really tend to throw, visually for me, tend to throw looking at this ClinCheck off a bit. It, it just kind of uh, makes, it, makes it different. But I think that this is getting really close to being an acceptable, an acceptable outcome for our ClinCheck. So we can approve this. We could send it back again. We could say, you know, we still need to get these actual inclinations a little bit better. Uh, we're planning to do the enamel plasty. But all in all, I think we're really close here to what would be an acceptable, an acceptable clean check based on the criteria that we set earlier. So, in fact, uh, this is not showing up very well on this screen, but um, this is what, if you look at the tissue heights, this is about midway through the treatment, and you'll notice that the canine tissue is not what it appeared to be at all in the clean check, and neither are the central uh, heights. And when we look at it, it's really starting to look pretty good because from the anterior view, the buccal corridors are looking pretty good. So the treatment itself uh, is really coming through. So as you're uh, following through the treatment, check these guidelines that, you, that you've established. Make sure that things are looking like you really want them to be. Now, this case has just finished up. I don't have the final photos, but it turned out really well. We did a lot of did some enamelplasty. The tissue heights were good. Actual inclinations in real life don't look quite as bad as they did uh, on the ClinCheck, so that looks pretty good. Uh, we may need to do a little enamelplasty on this canine over here. looks a little bit long. All of that will be taken care of when we get to, um, after we retain them for a period of time, I usually like six to eight weeks depending on mobility of the teeth, full-time wearing these retainers, and then I like to equilibrate. And it's at the equilibration point that I... Um, uh, do the enamel path, either in the anterior or for canines or whatever I need to do. So I've got one more case. We're going to look at this. Uh, this was a, a case where we started it, and there was a, a TMJ problem. Uh, she'd been treated previously, still had a problem with her with her teeth, with her joints. We put her in a, a treatment appliance before, uh, got her into centric relation, and this case is one that actually is going to be treated in centric relation as opposed to centric occlusion because we had a previous joint issue that we had to correct. So when we did our scans, uh, the, you can see that the occlusion really looks funny because it's it's um, in centric relation rather than centric occlusion. So let's look at this and see what it looks like. But the same principles apply. Now a lot of times what appears to be an open bite is just a tooth or two really interfering and once we get the teeth straight and we do the equilibration, we can close down that bite so that it's not appearing so open, which is, in fact, what happened in this case. But this is what we started out with. And here's what the lab technician sent back to us. So we look at that, and it just uh, it, it's hard to envision because the bite appears to be open. Now, when we end up eliminating the interferences in the posterior, it closes the bite down. So that's that's not primarily a concern to me. But what I want to look at is a couple of things that kind of stand out. Buccal corridor looks pretty good on the left side. You can see premolar, premolar, molar. On this side, on the right side, four, five, three, four, five doesn't look quite as good. It looks completely different. So what we want to do is then describe to our lab technician, we want how 
3, 4, and 5 appear from the anterior view to be the same as 12, 13, 14. So when we send it in, we've given them a good description. We're going to move number 5 palatally. We want to move number 4 palatally, and we want that to match what, how it appears on the left side. Also, the tissue heights tend to be a little bit different, so we can't let that mess us up too much because this makes the centrals look a little funny. But what ends up happening here is that the axial inclination is just not quite there on the lateral, so we'd want to correct that. So when I send this case in, I'm going to give those instructions to make those corrections. Now, the one thing that I don't want to do on a case like this is extrude those teeth to the point that I've got an incisal edge position that is off. Because when you first look at this, your first inclination is that, ooh, we've got to do something with either extruding those uppers, extruding the lowers, or doing both. The guideline that's going to give you the correct answer is where is that incisal edge position before you start the treatment? What can you do with it? Do you need to intrude, extrude, move forward, move backward? So in a case like this, similar to the one that I showed you before where the incisal edge case was incisal edge position was off. You got to make sure on this one too that you're not that you're in the right position because what you do with the case ultimately is going to depend on uh, the incisal edge position of those central incisors because everything else is going to match up. Now in this case in particular, the incisal edge position was correct, so uh, we moved everything to that position. Got our golden proportions, got our buccal corridors, got our axial inclinations all to that position. And it ended up being a great case because I was able to equilibrate it. And it took, you know, this case took a long time because it was a lot of movement that had to occur to be able to get these teeth from this position to ultimately a modified position here. And I've got several other clean checks that I could show you, but we're running out of time. So, David, I'm going to turn it back to you. Thank you, Dr. Gardner. Great presentation. Um, I want to cover one quick thing that's very important in order to receive your CE certificate for this program. Currently on the screen right now, there's a link to take a quick survey. Once you complete your survey, you'll have immediate access to your CE certificate, so please go there after the completion of the program. If you experience any problems with viewing any of the presentation, the archive program will be available one week from today on the Education tab of your Bizline Doctor site. I want to thank Dr. Gardner again for a great presentation and for all of you for taking time out of your Friday to join us for the Expert Webinar.